Curators, a podcast from Glasgow International, bringing together artists and curators in creative conversation. Find us at glasgowinternational.org. My name is Sal Randolph, and I'm an artist and writer. I live in New York, and my work has centered in part around questions of value, of what we do find valuable, but also what we care about. So value in both of those senses. And in some sense, also value as a way of thinking about uh, what we pay attention to. And I'm Graham Burnett, and I'm a friend of South. <laughs> and so much more. <laughs> I also live in New York. I'm a teacher, a writer, and uh, I was trained in the history and philosophy of science. So I have a strong interest in the past. In this episode, Graham Burnett and Sal Randolph discuss their upcoming event, The Dance of Attention, their membership of the research collective, Estar Ser, and their shared interest in the history and practices of attention. Sal, correct me if I'm wrong, we actually did um, first get to know each other maybe 12 or 14 years ago uh, here in New York in connection with an exhibition around problems of value. And I was co-curating some time back with some friends an exhibition on art and money. And um, we had Sal in as a panelist because we loved her stuff. And she may even have posed a fascinating provocational problem by slightly lifting something <laughs> from the exhibition. We won't say steal. We'll say lift. <laughs> <laughs> and presenting uh, my little world with the problem of what to do. And this right away brings us to the problem of history and what we imagine happened in the past and <laughs> the way Rashomon-like we all remember things slightly differently. I was definitely on that panel and the show was definitely about value. <laughs> but I myself was not personally the person who interrogated what was possible around that piece by removing temporarily a small portion of it. It seemed to offer that possibility. I work a lot with gift economies and I was giving away money as one of my primary art practices and uh, engaging in other kinds of gift economy activities. And all of that conversation had kind of raised, um, that's my dog now, <laughs> raised a lot of interest in the room about ownership and what ownership meant and what possession meant and what value in art meant, how seriously we could take what the art itself seemed to be talking about in terms of how we were going to activate it. So when a very new friend, somebody I'd only met that night, became curious about activating it, I was a little conspiratorial and encouraging. I'll, I'll own up to that. <laughs> I was very curious about how that would go. It actually caused a bit of panic among the artists. It was a collectively made object. And there was a great uh, hullabaloo that ensued. But I think in a way, something like an event, a provocation, a problem, is a kind of great way to start a friendship. Because, you know, you're right already, right in there together with uh, big questions. Amen to that. And uh, so I got to know Sal as a kind of a trickster in the first instance, but a philosophical trickster par excellence. And over the years, we've had a couple of opportunities to teach together. And in fact, most relevantly, perhaps for the GI with its theme of attention this year, 
Uh, Sal and I taught a graduate seminar at Princeton a decade ago on attention. And it's maybe worth saying that in addition to problems of value, Sal is a person who has a deep line in contemplative practices. And that was another place we met coming out of very different traditions. It actually started right before we were teaching that class. Um, we were working on what the syllabus would be like, and Graham had spoken about the Ignatian meditations in the Catholic tradition as an important notion for him. And for whatever reason, I perhaps even mistakenly thought he would want to explore those in the class on attention. And I thought we needed some kind of counterbalance from an Eastern tradition. I'd long studied and read about Zen Buddhism, but I hadn't actually become a practitioner. But in the course of trying to find a book to bring to that class, I actually, I was reading a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by um, Suzuki Roshi. And in one of his little talks or essays, he talked about doing Zazen or sitting meditation. That became the beginning of what's now quite a serious uh, Zen practice. And I'm a a Zen student. So uh, that's kind of a funny way that our friendship instigated <laughs> what is now a very important part of my life. My own line into that stuff really came through my history of science work. Intellectual historians have been interested for a long time in the inner world of thought. And there are a couple of thinkers in, again, the history of science who take up a lot of space René Descartes, one thinks of Pascal, one thinks of Newton, heroic images of the inner life of the thinker. And, you know, this is a long time ago now, but I was writing about the history of mathematics and the history of science and interested in where those characters had learned how to be inside themselves, focused on the problem of understanding. And many of them um, had one or another form of relatively deep contemplative religious practice, prayer, and in a kind of initially purely historical way, I got interested in reading about what those folks would have done to practice being inside their minds. Um, And it's in that context that I came across the Ignatian uh, meditations, which are an important aspect of that tradition in the West. So it's important to point out that that tradition of Western Christian contemplation can certainly be implicated in a rather unsavory history of anthropocentrism, um, racialized, colonial, oppressive regimes. All that stuff is important. There's lots of bad history, but there's also lots of interesting stuff in the past we want to keep our hands on. And I guess I think of my work as a historical thinker, always trying to find what should we be holding on to from the past? You know, one of the things that I remember us talking about in that very first conversation on that panel when we first met uh, was another aspect of attention, which I think also does kind of inform still what we're doing today, which is I was talking a little bit about an idea that an artist and thinker, Gregory Cholette, had about the dark matter of the art world. So he was talking about how the art world as we normally conceive it with a certain um, number of exhibitions, biennials, 
art magazines brings into the light a sort of small coterie of international artists, but they are supported by a vast unseen interest in activity. So for instance, one of the things he mentions is we wouldn't really be able to go to an art store and buy a tube of paint if innumerable uh, invisible Sunday painters weren't buying and using paints. So there's so many kinds of artists, whether they're people who were in school and then stopped making art in a visible way, whether it's people who we might think of as amateur artists, whether it's hobbyists, all different kinds of art which escape the very small spotlight. And it's that weight of dark matter that actually has the the gravitational force, you could say, to organize a huge amount of activity that we think of as this little tiny focal activity. So all of the museum goers create a museum. Without all of the museum goers, no museum exists. And so we think of it as the house of objects, of treasures that we're going to hold on to. But it's also all of the people whose interest is choreographed by those treasures. Uh, it is such a powerful image. And it jumped together with, I think, our appetite for uh, what might be called underworlds of creative production lay as opposed to expert forms of knowledge. All those outsiders and eccentrics and enthusiasts whose percolations kind of make the world feel livable and who, so importantly because of where they fly, do fly under the catchment zone of transactional, money-oriented, capitalist exchange. And I think, again, for, for both of us, if in different ways, an interest in theorizing and cultivating forms of resistance. You know, it's, um, it's actually making me, this conversation has brought an idea into my mind for the first time is I wonder if you might, how you think about this, Graham, but if you might think of history as a kind of dark matter, you know, so it's huge gravitational force of everything that's already happened is acting on us at all times, but we really, uh, we don't see most of it. We see very, very little of it. And whether that kind of that sense of trying to go into the dark matter and, and recuperate bring forward, as you put it, into the present bits and pieces that we might be able to make use of in a good way, bring those into the spotlight of our awareness. Yeah, I love the image. It's not one I've thought about before. It's totally cool. It's, you know, it, it is, it's hard to talk about history in the right ways these days. We are at a moment, quite rightly, where escaping from history or resetting in relation to the dead hand of the past, these things have never kind of felt more urgent, not in my lifetime. And I have one th thought on that because, you know, there's a sort of a radioactive word that could get invoked here, which is a term like tradition. It, you are not going to make a lot of friends if you go around singing little paeons to the idea of tradition these days, especially not in a progressive art setting. And that is as it should be. And I'm not wearing a T-shirt right now that says, return to tradition. That's not the T-shirt I'm wearing. But I've been you know, reading the great German sort of philosopher of interpretation, Gadamer, lately. And you know, 
Gadamer says some super interesting stuff about the way in which the 18th century, the Enlightenment, refashioned tradition almost entirely as something from which we had to escape. Right? We needed to be enlightened, which meant taking off your rose-tinted glasses of religious tradition and taking off the distorting frame of absolutist political governance. So tradition became the thing from which to escape. And what Gadamer argues, I think very affectingly, is that, in fact, some form of tradition is always a condition of possibility of understanding. Because the dynamic relationship between a thinking person and a sensing person and an object or a text is always that you bring certain propositions and then the work, the text, or the object, shows you that you aren't right. But the idea that somehow you would be without any sense of how this ought to be understood, Gadamer argues, profoundly naive, and in fact, ultimately kind of disabling. You, you wouldn't be able to even start if you didn't move from some sense that this text came out of some kind of world or this object came out of some kind of world that you have some relationship to and that begins to get you some handholds on what it's trying to offer, what it says, where it came from. You know, that I have so many different thoughts about that in different zones, one of which is I find it surprising. As soon as you said the word tradition, I realized that in my normal life, I actually say that word all the time. I say it as I teach Zen practice. So I am saying, you know, in our tradition, we sit facing the wall. In our tradition, we hold our hands like this. In our tradition, we do this. And for whatever reason, that's the locution that I'm constantly using. And and we also are constantly talking about the texts from the past. So when the you know, the ancient Chinese Zen masters and the Japanese Zen masters are are in our voices all the time. And I think of myself, you know, on a personal level as relatively radical and uh, uninterested in tradition. So just in this conversation, to, to suddenly realize that actually I have a quite now strong vested interest in, in tradition and in that kind of elusive notion of uh, authenticity, maybe, as, a, as something that comes from the past rather than something that's only in the present. But it also made me think of, uh, as you were just giving that account of the person and the object, or the whole range of ways that a person encounters an object or potentially another person or potentially a text. But for the most part, within Esther Serre, we're talking about people encountering works of art and what what happens in that space between and the and the incredibly rich variety some of which involves uh, sort of the opposite of the gambit that Graham was just uh, talking about some of which involves an attempt at least to forget almost everything you could possibly know about the object and come at it from an almost purely sensory perspective or experience and then rebuild a relationship with what it is from that sensory encounter rather than from your previous knowledge of the object. Um, not all the practices work that way, but but many of them explore that territory. Sal puts her finger on on an Estar Serra thing, which is in part what we're kind of here to talk about a little bit. On the 26th of 
June, the last Saturday of the GI this year, Sal will lead a group of collaborators from Estarcer in an Estarcer performance. These are often performance lectures when we're in person. Uh, this one running on Zoom will be even kind of more performative because the, the medium lends itself to that. But it is worth taking a little time to just kind of talk about what Estarcer is, which is a research collective that both Sal and I have been associated with going back for a lot of years now. It's a collective concerned with the history of attention, specifically concerned with the history of practices of attention, and sort of the core work is a kind of archival poetics of the relationship between people and objects. The art object, as we often say amongst ourselves, is a thing that, uh, that wants attention, that is a thing made to be seen. It's made to receive attention. Sometimes it receives attention, sometimes it doesn't. And that's an interesting problematic that we've kind of worked with, as in you know what we just evoked with the dark matter of the art world. Most art that is made is not being seen at any given moment. If you think of uh, museums and museum collections, a very tiny amount of it is actually on display and most of it is in storage. And so art doesn't always receive attention, but it is a sort of special category. A tree can receive attention for sure, but it is not made to receive attention, except perhaps by its pollinators. Um, and we could think about that, because I do think attention exists, you know, in the non-human world in very, very interesting ways. Because of that, art is a great kind of like a laboratory for thinking about the relation of a person and an object, or the relation of a person to the world or to other people. But sometimes it's easier to look at, a, at an area you're interested in a little bit obliquely, just a little bit, as uh, Emily Dickinson would say, slant, to give you a different kind of, a more playful laboratory to work in, to think through these questions. Um, and so, like an SDRCR performance lecture typically has, at its heart, a practice of attention. Folks in SDRCR will sometimes describe works of art as you know, reified requests for attention. So it's as if a work of art is a solicitation for attention made into matter, made into a thing. And yet, just as Sal was saying, the vast majority of them um, get almost no attention at all. And so some of what is often worked with in uh, SR performance lectures is this question of what kinds of devotees would you need to give of themselves with a kind of radical generosity to those needy objects out there in the world. This idea that attention can be itself a kind of dance is something that's part of uh, one of the things that's kind of come through our conversations over the years. I'm currently teaching a course uh, or just finished teaching a course on the choreography of attention, which tries to activate how works of art might have agency over you in a certain way and uh, choreograph your attention or you might choreograph your own attention in relation to them. So there's a kind of a meeting place between the solicitation of the work and who you happen to be at the moment that you're encountering it. But this performance lecture format has been really, I think, amazing for us because it allows us 
to kind of take on the persona of the researcher. I mean, we're actually researchers, but we're taking on the persona of the researcher as well and bring that to the audience in the form of sort of as if we were just doing a kind of straight up historical lecture presentation. And I think there might be even a familiar now moment of confusion that's created in the audience about exactly what, a little bit of a mystery about exactly what's going on. Are we just really hearing um, history? And we are hearing history, but we also always bring into these forms of actual activation. And I do think that um, when Sal refers also to the slant of vision, she talks about something that's dear to the heart of everybody in Astar Ser. One of my most favorite choreographies of attention is uh, what's called averted vision. It's a basic physiological fact about our eyes that we discern color better in the central region of our field of vision, where the fovea is, and we have better discernment of very faint light at the periphery. But you can actually see fainter light at your periphery than you can at the center of your field of vision. And if you've never run this as a kind of party trick, it's pretty weird. If you go out on a dark night and look say, at the moon or at a streetlight and center that in your vision, and then without looking left or right, become aware of the faintest body of light that you can see in your peripheral vision, let's say a very, very faint star. And then once you are aware of that peripheral speck of light, go ahead and direct your vision to center on it, and you will discover this uh, uncanny effect, which is that it disappears. Uh, and it disappears because basically you have a lot more color discerning cells in the middle of your retina and they crowd out the very uh, sensitive light receiving cells so that you just don't have enough sensitive light receiving cells in the middle of your field of vision to pick out that very faint star. So as a metaphor, it's just exquisite for the strangeness of attention. There are certain kinds of seeing, certain kinds of discerning certain kinds of understanding that don't fare well when you drill down on them and make them central. They emerge delicately in peripheries. So one example that we've that comes to mind is the Aldous Huxley uh, exercises. So Aldous Huxley, British writer, as most of your audience will know, who, uh, as it happens, had famous difficulty with his eyes and sought help in a kind of system of eye yoga, which he did not invent, but he wrote a small book called The Art of Seeing, which detailed this particular system of looking and of exercises of the eyes to which would ostensibly help improve your vision. And he had a theory that art in particular was perilous to look at because looking at a strange thing or a new thing challenged your visual system more intensely than looking at a familiar thing. And so you had to do all these preparatory uh, exercises in order to be able to see a strange thing. And so just doing those exercises with the audience, those involve, for instance, covering your uh, hands with the palms of your eyes. It involves... Uh, uh, 
uh, standing sideways to the object and glancing at it and glancing away in a kind of flirtatious gesture. It involves fall, sometimes a different one might be following the contours of the object, you know, as if it were a series of lines. That's an almost direct kind of choreography of your, of your eye movements, all of which help you learn to see. I, I love everything that you're saying. It's just so right on. And, um, so sure, there's the Batesian, uh, Huxley style, uh, eye yoga exercises. Um, we're super interested in choreographic movements of the eye, uh, derived in part from the work of, um, the late 19th, early 20th century American psychologist and philosopher, William James, who argued that at core, attention was not about blinkering one's view and sort of blocking out everything at the periphery. Um, That was actually, James argued, a kind of stultification of the mind and the senses to try to tighten down. Instead, he said, real attention is the ability continuously to pull the live mind as it departs from the object back around to the object, making pedals that keep returning. And what James, in a sense, argues is you have to have a thought and then another thought and another thought and another thought and bend those thoughts back around to come back. And we, in Estar Ser, dramatize that or, or invite folks to participate with us in activating that idea about attention by doing it using a card with an aperture as they look at a work and let themselves leave it and leave it and leave it and come back to it. So that would be another example. And we have dozens of these um, games, in a sense, not totally unlike the sorts of things that a docent might do with you in a museum. You, you know, I think there are some folks who've seen Estarcer projects as a little bit like an, an art practice that elaborates the docential practice of education. And people are often taught that they themselves are inadequate to the experience of looking at a work of art. Um, people very often feel intimidated by the museum setting, even if they might be, you know, having a good time talking to their friends and ending up in the gift shop, <laughs> um, you know, and ex- having their whole kind of the arc of their whole museum experience might be enjoyable. But ultimately, if they're standing alone for too long in front of a work of art, I've found uh, many people, otherwise extremely well-educated people, can be frightened actually uncomfortable with that encounter. And um, uh, so I'm in, in many ways dedicated to democratizing that encounter. But I will say Graham's training as a historian has, you know, strongly affected our friendship. I didn't have this passionate interest in history before our friendship. And as we've explored all of these histories together, his knowledge of what archives are like, how to maneuver in them, how to think about them. For me, it's, you know, it's a whole treasure box of new ways of thinking. And it makes me think, you know, that uh, Sal hasn't talked too much about her own kind of textual practice, but, you know, Sal's the author of a number of super interesting books of poetry. If there was a way in which I came bearing a lot of history to the friendship, she came bearing a lot of poetry to the friendship and there have been some happy crossings and all that. Among all the different things that Esther Serra has done over the years, we have done quite a lot of publishing work. And 
it's exciting. I'm just about to send to the printer a really kind of giant book to be published there in the UK by Strange Attractor, distributed by MIT Press. The book is already up on the catalog for MIT. It's called In Search of the Third Bird. And Sal has multiple pieces and collaborative projects in the book. It is nearly 800 pages and richly illustrated. So a shout out, thank you to Strange Attractor and MIT. Um, and uh, that book will be out in November. It was a total joy to get a chance to talk to uh, Sal like this, really fun. We could probably talk about Estarcera for a thousand hours and there still would be weird things to talk about. Like that 800 page book could easily have been twice its length. <laughs> Sal Randolph and Graham Burnett. Find out more about the Dance of Attention at glasgowinternational.org. Encounters was produced by Lindsay Moyes for Glasgow International, supported by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund and Arts Fund. Thank you for listening.